Turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis for continuation of chapter 3. There's two final paragraphs that are yet before us. I at one time thought we'd be done with chapter 3 by Christmas, but as you have seen, that was overly ambitious, and I have no regrets. But we come back now uh, to a two-verse paragraph, verse 20 and... 21. And since this is by now so very familiar, Genesis chapter 3, uh, let me just remind you what has immediately preceded the text I'm going to read is a word of curse upon the serpent, which is to say Satan. A word of curse upon the woman, verse 16. And a word of curse upon Adam, verses 17, all the way through 19. So God has just stopped speaking. And then we have verse 20 and verse 21. Moses wants us to know these two things come next. Verse 20, this is the word of God. The man called his wife's name. Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Amen. See God's blessing on his word. Our Father, we know you. We recognize you and all of these words about you in your inspired book. We recognize you because you have been this way to us, even as you were to our first father and mother. We love you and worship you for all that you are. We are able to do so. Because all that you have become to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you'll give us fresh reasons for praise and for love today. We ask it in his name. Amen. The judge has rendered his verdict. Adam and Eve have received their sentence. Their sins have found them out. Recall those words that precede the text for this morning, God's curses. And as such, they would have landed on those cursed, as we would say, like a ton of bricks. Nothing will be the same. The disruption is deep. Adam's relationship with God has been disrupted. His relationship with his wife has been disrupted. His relationship with the world down to the soil of the earth has been disrupted. Even his own being will face that disruption as body and soul are eventually torn apart. All of that has just been uttered by the judge. But in recent weeks... We've also seen that in and among those words of judgment, 
is words of mercy, reasons for hope. I just remind you, God is speaking. He's not striking them dead. His words make clear that he is not about to withdraw all of the privileges that he had given to them as his image bearers in the earth. His words make that very clear. And then there are those words that he speaks to the serpent. As you remember in verse 15, God makes clear, unmistakably clear, he will fight now for them and against their common enemy. So, brothers and sisters, we've seen this. There's both judgment and mercy in the words that are still, as it were, ringing in the air in the telling of the story, at least as Moses, under the Spirit's inspiration, gives it. And you know what's about to come. The story is very familiar to us, and Adam and Eve's life is about to change in an especially tragic way. They're about to get a new address. The most immediate consequence of their rebellion against God is that they will be banished from his presence. They will be accompanied to the door of that garden temple they were privileged to live in. That's about to happen. But before that happens, Moses wants you to know two things. What Adam names his wife and what God does to provide for Adam and Eve's nakedness. I think you know by now that Moses doesn't waste words. As a matter of fact, we would love it if he had said more to us, right? There's so much more we would have loved to have heard. He doesn't waste any words. Everything he does say is full of meaning. And so our purpose is to discern why does Moses tell us this I'll just give you a hint. Moses is pointing to something on both sides of this fractured relationship between God and man. Something on both sides that give hope of better things to come. So I hope you'll be very encouraged by our little text today. Verses 20 and 21. Our sermon title is also our outline this morning. We'll talk first about Adam's hope. And then about God's provision. Now, I don't know about you, but verse 20 has always struck me as odd, not so much for what it says, but for where it appears in the story. And uh, that, no doubt, I've shared with others, uh, because the naming thing has already happened. We were already introduced to Adam naming the animals and then naming the woman who was just made from his side. Back in chapter 2, that seems like the place to include this detail. That seems like the place for Adam to have done what he does in verse 20. But notice, Adam had first named this new creature taken from his side by the hand of God, woman. That was his first name of her. And that was a reference to what she was in relation to him. So, woman, uh, a word that take, is taken from the word for man, 
she was in relation to him, from him, in order to be with him as one flesh. But that's not the emphasis of the second naming that we read of now in chapter 3. It's not a name that reflects who this woman is in relation to that first man. Adam gives his wife the name Eve. And I can't improve on the footnote that many of you have in your Bibles uh, that goes something like this. Eve sounds like the Hebrew for life giver. The word resembles the word for living. We're told, Moses tells us in verse 20, he does this, he names her Eve. In the Septuagint, it's Eva. Because she was the mother of all living. So this second naming of the woman points to not so much who she is in relation to Adam, but who she is in relation to everyone. All of us, all of mankind. Adam is saying something about her role in God's plan to be the matriarch of the human race. All the men and women from that point on would come from her. So that's what Adam does. He's calling his wife Eve for those reasons. And I wonder if anyone's thinking, way to go, Adam. You display an amazing grasp of the obvious. Hasn't this been clear already up to this point? Hadn't this been clear the moment that God said to Adam and Eve, now here's how it's going to work. It's not like the angels where I make them all at once. Here's how this is going to work. You two are going to make babies, and then they're going to make babies, and then they're going to make babies, and they're going to fill the earth, and so I want you to do that. This is part of the plan. Hadn't he been listening? He had. So it's not as if Adam says something that is so profound in this verse. It's not so much what he says. It's when he says it. Brothers and sisters, listen carefully. Adam is saying this in response to what God has just said. Adam is naming Eve in response to, more specifically, one particular thing that God had said. It's the thing he said in verse 15. It's the thing he'd said about his coming judgment upon the serpent. In all those fearful judgments, Adam and Eve would have heard what he said first to the serpent. And hope would have had reason to spring up in their hearts. Because God is declaring himself against their enemy. He's declaring the ultimate overthrow of their enemy. And... Just as Satan had made Eve his weapon against our first father, God says, I'm going to make Eve my weapon against you, Satan. Her seed is going to crush your head. Her offspring and all of its numerical size, and, as we saw, in one particular manifestation, one particular son of Eve would crush the serpent 
So motherhood has been a theme in the curse of the serpent. Adam has heard that. He's grasped something of the significance of that. And so Adam, in response, after God has finished speaking, turns to his wife. And you might say he salutes the high and holy role that she's going to have in God's coming redemption. By the way, we can be very encouraged that this now very sinful husband, fresh after his own fall into depravity and all the rupture that that brought between him and his wife, is talking this way to his wife. The last time we heard him talking about his wife, he was full of bitterness, shifting blame from himself to her, and you could well imagine in his sinfulness, after hearing everything that God was about to bring about because of the sin that Adam had done, tempted by his wife, you could well imagine Adam turning to his wife and saying, see what you did. As a continuation of the sin merging in his heart towards his wife. Rather hopeful, actually, that he's treating his wife this way, don't you think? Brothers and sisters, here's what's even more hopeful about Adam. And it's really the reason that Moses places this information here, recording what Adam did in the wake of all those words of God, of judgment mingled with mercy. Adam couldn't say this. What he says of Eve as the mother of all the living, he could not say this apart from faith in God and hope in his promises. Uh, Think about it. Childbirth is still an abstraction for Adam and Eve. You might say the first baby hadn't even been invented yet. Eve's not a mother at all, much less the mother of all the living. And that bit about being fruitful and multiplying that that, that birds and the bees talk that God had given Adam and Eve, that everything has changed since those moments of such innocence and hopefulness. But God has spoken. He has said, Eve, it's going to be painful. But you're still going to be a mommy. You're going to be a means by which the world is filled. And we're seeing Adam here. Take that to heart. He believes God. He says to his wife, you're going to be a mother of a vast multitude that no one can number. And yes, he would not be the last patriarch to look at his wife in light of the promise of God with that kind of confidence. Do you see why many have Come to verse 20 in Genesis chapter 3 and seen in verse 20 the first sign of grace at work in Adam's heart. Do you see it now? Do you you see that many, uh, take my word for it, many have come to verse 20 and said, there it is. We had the gospel in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. And what's the right response to gospel? It's faith. And there it is. It's in Adam. He couldn't say those things apart from confidence in God's word, his promise. 
You could say in verse 20, is our first profession of faith by a sinner in the earth. God, rather, Adam could not say this apart from faith in God and hope in his promises. Let me just, before we move on, let me just remind you the nature of faith. It is a, it is a staggering thing. It's an impossible thing. It's a supernatural thing because faith considers the things that God has promised to be as good as done. There's some discussion about how verse 20 should be translated. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That's how most of us have it. Some have said because she was going to become the mother of all living would be a better way to translate it. It's actually not more faithful to the Hebrew, but it seems like that's what he should be saying because she would become the mother of all the living. But you know this about heroic faith in the Bible. It considers God's word to make it as good as done. But that's how Adam speaks about Eve. He starts calling her mom. Even before she has the baby bump. It's beautiful. Why do some believe and others don't in this world? Why do all of us who believe struggle with unbelief? Brothers and sisters, it's because faith is a gift. It's a gift the first time, and it's a gift the umpteenth time. All this should stir us up to seek the same gift that God so quickly gives to Adam. What do you think? Was it harder for Abraham to look at his elderly wife, Sarah, and see in her the mother of a multitude? Or for Adam, just having had the boom dropped on him of all God's judgment for his sin and all the sense of alienation that he's still working through and no idea what it actually means experientially to have a baby, much less a whole family, for him to look at his wife and say, you're a, you're a mother, as good as mom of all mankind. Well, I don't know the answer to my question. I don't know which is greater. They're both supernatural. They're both gifts. Lord, give me faith, confidence that whatever you say is as good as done. What a priceless gift. We're seeing evidence of it already in the heart of Adam. That's Adam's hope. Could also render that Adam's faith. Hope is our faith in God's promises of that which is good to come. Let's move on to verse 21 now, second half of our time together. And let's look at, verse, uh, look, at, look at God's provision in verse 21. So I said verse 20 may seem like an odd fit for the moment. I hope you can see better now why it's there. But we all see, when we come to verse 21, how exquisite the timing is. For what God does here 
It's exactly what it's intuitive to us. Adam and Eve desperately need. So we've already glanced ahead at this passage, as you may remember. Chapter 2, we encountered Adam and Eve naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, earlier, as we see them eating the forbidden fruit, their eyes are open. They come to know that they are naked. And kids, you remember what they did? They were afflicted with this sudden sense of modesty. You know what they did, kids? They found leaves that would work if you sewed them together and make for themselves little garments. That's where we had left this uh, so far in chapter 3. Now, we see God taking their need for clothing in hand. God makes provision for them of clothing that is far better than what was probably uh, ridiculous to look at. Now, we're going to dive into some theological significance of what God does, but can we just, before we get there, can we just make the observation, what God does is very dramatic. You might even say traumatic if you were watching them. I'm referring, of course, to the fact that when God made for Adam and Eve uh, garments, he made them of skin. You see that there. So that is to say they were leather garments, as we would speak. They were the skins, we are left to conclude, of animals. Kids, were they deer skin? Ram skin? Don't know. Probably not alligator skin. Animal skin, what God uses, which means, of course, that there was a death there in the garden that God brought about in order to clothe his creature man. And presumably it would have happened right there in front of Adam and his wife, God killing in order to clothe. I'm just asking you to imagine how shocking that would have been, how unsettling that would have been. The same gentle hands that had fashioned Eve from the rib of Adam was now slaughtering a calf or a lamb or whatever it was, skinning it, turning his flesh into garments for his people. So this is fearful and this is wonderful. Don't Overlook that and, yes, it's full of meaning. We all have that sense intuitively, full of meaning. This is God's first response to Adam's faith. It's God now acting after Adam has made that little profession. And I want you to see three things in what God does in verse 21. Number one, God pities them in their state of guilt and shame. So why are they so embarrassed to be in front of God naked? Hadn't he created them naked? We saw that. We realize this 
shame was due to something very deep. They're, uh, they're conscious, even to the point of, of being excruciatingly conscious that they are naked in his presence. And it's their own moral repulsiveness that is making them so conscious of themselves. This shame that was overpowering of them earlier in the chapter is uh, the obstacle to their fellowship with him. This is why <laughs> this little arts and crafts moment where they try to put together something to wear. What verse 21 reveals is that God knows all this. He completely understands why they would be so racked with guilt and shame. And in the wake of all that judgment that he's pronounced, he has compassion. You see that? God's angry at, their, at them for their sin. Not without pity. And what the later prophets of God would call this is perhaps a little relenting on God's part in all of his righteous anger. A little turning away uh, from anger towards compassion. I'm reminded of the words of the king of Nineveh in response to the preaching of Jonah. And he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Is that what Adam was thinking as God is thundering his judgments? Perhaps he will relent so that we may not perish. Uh, the king of Nineveh was counting on Jonah's word not being the last word. Three days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He was counting on the God who sent that word that that was not the last word. And that was not the last word to Adam. As becomes clear in what God does. I grant that there's not an official, formal pardon that's issued here. And there is more severity to come. We're going to see that next week, Lord willing. Uh, banishment. Exile. But there is pity in God's heart. I'm remembering that one line in the wonderful Psalm 103. He will not always nor will he keep his anger forever. God has been chiding indeed. And if there was ever a time that God had the full right to go on and on and on in only anger and censure and judgment, it would have been this. But even here, faced with the rebellion of his children, he will not end the interview, if you will. Only on a note of displeasure. Also pity. You know what that looks like, don't you? Children, I trust you know well what this looks like. On the face 
of your father and mother. They have reason to be angry. You see anger in their face. And then something happens to their face. You see pity in, in the eye first. Sometimes in the relaxing of the mouth. You all know what I'm speaking about. That look, that face of pity. I'm saying to you, that's what Adam and Eve saw. That's what they saw, of all things. In the face of God. Pity in their state of guilt and shame. Second thing they, that we see in God is that he sees their self-covering as utterly inadequate. <laughs> That's quite clear from what we're told in verse 21. Adam and Eve are not technically naked as they stand there, but they're clothed in garments of their own making. And apparently, in light of what God does, he considers it utterly inadequate. Perfectly pathetic. Now, we've already looked at this. this is such an iconic picture early in the Bible of something that will become a theme in the Bible that all of humanity in their sin and the guilt and shame that comes with their sin have this compulsion to do something about it. We know we're not glorious creatures anymore. We have reason to be ashamed of ourselves. What is our reflexive response? Universally, it's to spin something to cover ourselves with. It might be excuses for our behavior. It might be blame shifting. We've seen some of that. It might be pointing out other things to distract, to deflect, other good deeds that will uh, distract from what we've done bad. All of it amounting to what we now call a fig leaf. So futile in covering our guilt. And what we gather from verse 21 is that before God clothes Adam and Eve, he first strips them of those attempts they had made to take care of their own shame and guilt. Now, maybe he just gave the command, okay, you can take those things off now. <laughs> maybe he just told them, get rid of it certainly would have been his prerogative after crafting those new clothes to personally disrobe them of all that they had put around themselves. Either way, that would have been in the midst of all of God's pity been a painful moment, don't you think? I think that part was painful. Nakedness was a shame to them, and their attempts to cover their nakedness being so inadequate, that also would have been very embarrassing, shameful. So, brothers and sisters, think about it. God's pity on them would have also brought pain, a kind of reproof. Don't try to fix this. You can't fix this. 
brothers and sisters, this is why so many sinners don't want God's pity, his saving compassion, because they place such high value on their own attempts at moral self-adornment, improvements. They consider to be more than sufficient. I mean, look around. Better than the next guy. So what the gospel will eventually open up in all of its fullness of God's provision of clothing for sinners. Oh, it's not meant as another layer that you put on just when you're going out in the cold. (laughs) God's covering has to be worn next to the skin. It has to be your whole covering. Paul speaks of his fellow Israelites in Romans 10 when he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is the effort of sinners to establish their own righteousness, kind of like a a little boy who's not a little boy anymore says, Mommy, I can do it. I can dress myself. Salvation requires what Paul calls submitting to the righteousness that is from God. Saying, I'm ashamed of everything I've done, and I'm actually further ashamed of everything I've done to try to cover what I've done. I'm ashamed of it all. I need you to cover me. Take off my clothes and put good ones on. The brothers on Saturday morning have been talking about what if God is gracious and we live to old age, what it will mean to get to the point where someone else has to dress us. We become so dependent on others that even those most basic functions, like getting dressed, are impossible for us to do by ourselves. And we've been noting in advance Pride makes old age harder than it needs to be. (laughs) Resolving to be surrendered to our neediness. When that time comes, I'm grateful for those who are willing and love to help us get So it's pride that keeps many from accepting God's solution to our shame. So before you can receive the provision that we're about to look at, proper clothing. Brothers and sisters, you have to be willing to get naked in front of God. Cast off all your attempts to simply earn your own righteousness. All your excuses even those trophy accomplishments that make the rest of us think highly of you, just be naked, for a moment at least, before your God. This is the first picture I see in the Bible of what we call sovereign grace. The principle that salvation's of the Lord and what makes Christianity unique. Every other religion, you get to dress yourself. Christianity, 
No, God undresses you. And then he dresses you properly. How does he do that? Number three. Number one was God pities Adam and Eve in their state of guilt and shame. Number two is God sees their self-covering as utterly inadequate. And number three, we see God's provision of clothing involves the death of another. So God can solve the problem. Adam and Eve can't solve the problem, but oh, what a bloody, brutal solution. There's deep gospel mystery first being pictured here. Adam and Eve are clothed in the flesh of another creature. A living creature that was itself without sin, whose life was forfeited for their covering. So God takes these steps. I've already asked you to envision the trauma of it. Blood. Slaughtering. And how would that have landed on the ears of those first exposed to Genesis chapter 3? You know they were. They were the Israelites following Moses through the wilderness, having been given instruction about tabernacle, altar, sacrifice, and blood, and lambs dying in their place. How would they have heard this? I think it would be a mistake to say that what God does is a sacrifice. After all, it's God doing it. It's not an act of worship. But what he does do is pointing at the same thing later sacrifices would be pointing to. It's the same principle. What is that principle? It's that we as sinners need to be covered not merely with something, but with someone. In our sinfulness, we need to be covered by a sinless one, one who committed no wrong. In order for that to happen, he has to die. Folks, if Genesis 3.15 was the first gospel, I'm calling this the second gospel in Genesis. It's an acted out picture of God's coming provision of righteousness found in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness comes to sinners in the person of Jesus by means of his death and resurrection. And it's the righteousness of that person that we are covered with in the gospel. After speaking of the Jews as those who would not submit to God's righteousness, just a couple of chapters later, Paul says, so put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the language of a garment. That's the language of being covered the New Testament, as we've already heard this morning, under Elder Cleveland, speaks of this garment of righteousness in two ways. This righteousness of Christ comes to us as imputed righteousness. That's the righteousness of justification, his righteousness credited to us who believe. 
and it comes to us by impartation. That's the righteousness of sanctification, and it's just as much the righteousness of Christ now worked out in us. But notice, they both come, both kinds of righteousness, justification and sanctification, they both come by our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, that's pointed to there in the garden as Adam and Eve take the skin. Lamb? If it was a lamb? God could have given them a good southern linen outfit. Could have spun some cotton for them. Could have given them silk clothes. Some kind of polyester blend. But he chooses a method that involves a life for a life. Blood and death. Putting on of another. The apostle says these things are written for our instruction. Brothers and sisters. Adam and Eve. Standing there before God now. Fully dressed. They're a picture of what Paul says in Colossians 3. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's like a whole oak tree is in a certain sense in an acorn. It's all there, but oh, it does need to be manifested more fully. Genesis 3.21. It's all there. So my brothers and sisters, as we continue in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, and we get ready, we're going to see dreadful consequences of what Adam did. It's going to get worse. As we see that, keep remembering this scene in Genesis 3.21. The picture of a father dressing his way fathers do. Indulge me just a moment. I've had some little flashbacks to Sunday mornings of yesteryear in the Trice household. Yesteryear as in when we had five children, six and under. And as we attacked the job of getting five kids out the door and into the pew on Sunday morning, it was my job to dress the kids. Now, don't think it was so heroic. Ashley did all the hard work. Everything was laid out Saturday night. It was dummy proof. In order, full outfit, shoes, socks. I just had to go match the kid with the outfit. Some of you beginning parenting haven't gotten to this stage yet. Others of you will find it very familiar. You're sitting there in the chair, and a little guy who knows the drill knows that he begins by sort of backing into dad and sticking out one of his feet. And that gets a pair of, uh, a piece of the pants, the other leg. It's on. Turn around. Pull the shirt over. But be, dads, be quick about it. There's a little claustrophobia that can happen. It's going over the head. Remember, some of you? 
Then, of course, there's the back in the lap, socks, shoes. Sit still. Remember? Then there's the final buttoning, straightening, the tucking, combing. And then you leave. You wait and see how quick it took them to find that little patch of dirt between where you dress them and the church pew. It uh, has its harried moments, but as you can tell, uh, some of us get a little sentimental about it. Enjoy it, fathers. If you're in that stage, I tell this little story just to make this point. That is the kind of heavenly father we have. He gets us dressed. And he gets us presentable. Uh, not first to the world. Not first to each other. To himself. He gets us dressed to make us presentable to himself. This is a picture of fatherly love. It's what he does with all prodigals who come to him in faith. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Luke chapter 15. And all that fatherly provision for otherwise shabbily dressed children. The theme of the Bible. But it begins here. Of all places, right in the midst of Adam and Eve, deserving only judgment. And the father dresses his children. What a God. What a father we have. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are willing to come into your hands and all our shame, our guilt, painful deed. We are willing to hope what you intend to do with us. Lord, we pray that you would strip us of all unworthy attempts to fix our own sin, our own guilt, our shame. We, uh, we'd like to, if you're willing, take part in that. Strip it from ourselves. Cast it away. And Lord, when you do clothe us, we ask that you would be willing afresh to clothe, clothe us in a person. The one you sent to die for us and to live for us. And so we pray that this might be all of our privilege and our daily joy. 
Enable us to put on Christ as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.